is the errors that get deep down in your code base that are the toughest to wash out. How? Use new fashion smashing with exclusive learning action. Bugs just float away with smashing. So help your family's code stay spotless with easy to use smashing. Smashing. In this episode of the Smashing Podcast, we ask why accessibility really matters and why is it so important to get it right. Fitly talks in depth to Sarah Sweden to find out. But first, did you know that Smashing Magazine publishes brand new articles to the website throughout your working week? There's a lot to keep up with, but we're here to help. It's your weekly update. Kubernetes for front-end developers. Benjamin Ajibade notes that developers are migrating from on-premise technology and embracing the benefits cloud infrastructure offers. More so, there's a rapid shift from monolithic architecture to microservices architecture. This ensures apps have higher availability, are simple to install, and easy to upgrade. In this post, Benjamin introduces Kubernetes to front-end engineers and explains why Kubernetes is integral in a production-ready microservices architecture. Greg Dickens gives us the ultimate free solo blog setup with Ghost and Gatsby. When it comes to tools for publishing a blog, it can seem like there's never a perfect solution that mixes customization with easy admin. In this article, see step-by-step how you can get the best of both worlds by using Ghost as a headless CMS for a Gatsby static site. It covers all the tricky parts in depth and shows you can do everything for free. In lesser-known and underused CSS features in 2022, Adrian Becky faces the fact that CSS is constantly evolving and some cool and useful properties either go completely unnoticed or are not talked about as much as others. To help put that right, Adrian writes about a few of the more interesting ones and sets the record straight. Frank Joseph writes about understanding weak reference in JavaScript. Memory and performance management are important aspects of software development, and ones that every software developer should pay attention to. Though useful, weak references are not often used in JavaScript. In this article, Frank explains both weak and strong references in JavaScript, as well as the concept of reachability. And in Manage Accessible Design System Themes with CSS Color Contrast, Daniel Yushchik asserts that developing accessible products can be challenging, especially when some of the requirements are beyond the scope of development. It's one thing to enforce alt text for images and labels for form fields, but another to define an accessible color palette. From working with design handoffs to supporting custom themes in a design system, the CSS color contrast function can become a cornerstone for developers in enforcing sufficiently contrasting and accessible UIs. And that is your weekly update. Find all these and more at smashingmagazine.com slash articles. She is an independent web user interface and design systems engineer, author, speaker, and trainer based in Lebanon. She worked with companies and agencies all around the world from Netflix and Telus to the Royal Schiphol Group at Amsterdam Airport 
you know, just to name a few, where she built digital products which focus on accessibility, performance, and of course, cutting edge tech. Now, she also writes beautiful and very comprehensive, very, very comprehensive articles all around front-end, SVG, accessibility on her wonderful blog. And she's also working, which might be a rumor, we'll find out, on her very own video course on web accessibility. So we know she's an expert in creating accessible and beautiful interfaces, but did you know that she loves tea, drawings and birds and has raised more than a dozen of them throughout her life? My smashing friends, please welcome Sarah Sueden. Hello, Sarah. How are you? I am smashing. Oh, How are you? That's wonderful. I'm, uh, I don't know, I feel like coffee today. I had already three and I feel like I should get fourth, but you're not big in coffee, are you? No, I have my matcha sitting right next to me right now. Okay, that would be a very surprising start of the conversation. But what is your favorite tea, if I may ask? My favorite tea, um, if we're not counting matcha as tea, even though it is actually tea, but if... Okay, yes. so I would either say, I'd say it's either matcha or ginger tea. I love ginger. Okay, now, dear friends, if you want to ever ship any gifts to Sarah, you know what to ship. Uh, now, staying on the topic of food and drinks and beverages, uh, it's interesting, Sarah, because I know we've we known each other for I don't know how many years now, and we even shared pizzas on very different occasions in various parts of the world. That surely counts for something. And one thing that really kind of astonishes me when I think about our conversations and I think about you as a personality and just the incredible work that you put on the web, it's just incredibly difficult for me to find many people who are more passionate about accessibility as you are. So maybe you could give us a bit of a background of where this genuine empathy and excitement about accessibility comes from. Where did it all start, Sarah? Where? Do you want the long version answer or the short version answer? The very long uh, answer, if I can. Are you sure? No. Yes. <laughs> okay, but uh, pick, pick your, make your choice. Uh, whatever works for you works for me. Okay, so if you want some background, um, I, I've always been the kind of person who loves helping people, even if they don't directly ask for it. Um, so I'm just going to give you a quick example. Um, back when I was in college, it was, I think it was my second year in college or in, in university, and it was the start of the year and everyone was in the university and we were registering and doing all the necessary paperwork that we need to do to start uh, going to class. And there was a lot of people, basically. And there was this one old man, he was standing in the middle of the crowd and he, 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 he was carrying a few papers in his hand and a pen and he looked absolutely clueless. He had I could tell from his facial expressions that he was lost. He had no idea what he was supposed to do. So I approached him and I asked him, um, I always do this, by the way. I'm not sure if this is a good thing or a bad thing, but I tend to do this with strangers a lot. Um, so I, I said, is there anything I can help you with? Um, he looked at me and he said, I have no idea how to fill this paperwork uh, um, basically how to fill the paperwork in. He was there to register his son who couldn't be there. So he was registering him instead and he didn't know how to do it. And I know how, 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 how difficult it can be the first time because my first time when I went to college for the first time and the first year, it took me four days to register because 
there was no one there to help you. You can either find your way on your own or you just have to ask people. And if you don't ask, if you don't ask anyone, you're just going to stand there like that old man did. So I offered, if I, I asked him if I could help him, he welcomed, he welcomed my, um, my help. I took the paperwork. I took the pen. I started asking him questions and filling in the paperwork for him. And then when I finished, I told him exactly where to go next, exactly what to do. And, um, I basically just helped him as much as I could. I do this with a lot of people. Um, I don't know. I think it's, it's just part of who I am. Helping people makes me feel amazing. It makes even the smallest acts of anything that you do in your daily life, it makes them meaningful and gives them purpose. So to know that I have contributed a positive thing, no matter how small, into someone else's life is wonderful. And I want my work to have purpose as well. So when I started my career as a developer, I think it was in 2013, and this is something that I'm sharing for the first time, I went through a few years where I felt like I was doing, like what I was doing wasn't very meaningful to be honest. So I was just doing what I was doing just to make some money, make a living. And that was it. But, you know, I would get designs someone made and turn them into something that worked, which is nice because I love doing that. And, but, but I always, I kept asking myself for years, like, what is, what good is this contributing to the world? I wanted to feel like the code that I'm writing can make a difference. And it took some time for me to finally get there. So I started changing my path so to speak, by choosing choosing the clients that I wanted to work with. I started choosing clients that did meaningful things in the world. That way, if I helped them create a website to expand the reach, it meant that I was contributing to something good in this world as well. And I even expressed that on my Hire Me page where I explicitly, uh, uh, where I'm explicitly clear that I'm looking to do something meaningful in the world. So there is that. And on the other hand, I've always been fascinated with design in general. Um, I've never taken a design class in my life, not in university, not outside of university, but I've always been interested in design because of how it directly impacted people's lives. You can maybe start to see a connection here. So I'm going to give an example from an adjacent design field. Um, many people who have been following me for years know that, uh, that I'm fascinated and very passionate towards interior design. And the best thing I've ever read about interior design is that interiors should be designed around how we live. So how do you decide what you put in the kitchen, for example? How do you decide how much space you give a certain feature or piece of furniture in the house? The answer is based on how often it is needed by the people who will live in this house. A great interior designer will sit down with their client and ask them questions like, how do you start your day? What does your typical day look like? What do you do when you wake up in the morning? Do you work from home? Do you like having people over? Do you like entertaining? What are your hobbies? And the answers to all of these questions they ask creates the framework and guides the interior design decisions of the house that the client will live in. The house is designed and built around the client's lives, not the other way around. And I love that because if design isn't about people, then it is selfish, right? Then you're not really designing for people anymore. And accessibility and inclusive design in general, but accessibility is not the same as inclusive design. Accessibility design is all about people. There is no room for selfishness, in my opinion. So what you design and build either works for the user or it doesn't. And if it doesn't, then it needs to change because what good is anything that you build for people if they can't use it? Yeah. So 
connecting these two things, I, I love design and I love designing for people and I ha love helping people. So when, when I first learned about accessibility and I found out that some of the work that I was building prior to that was possibly creating barriers to access for people, I felt horrible. And I started feeling more responsibility and I started digging more into accessibility and learning more about it. And what I love the most about it is it makes me feel more like a designer. Why? Because, uh, well, I do believe that every dis all of us, we are designers one way or another. And the work that we do and the decisions that I make as a design engineer when I write code, these decisions have direct impact on the user experience. And that makes me a designer. So every decision that I make has a direct impact on the experience and the inclusivity and accessibility of the interfaces I build. A decision such as, for example, what HTML element I choose to use, how do I apply the styles because CSS affects semantics, which affect accessibility, um, which development strategy I follow, which is progressive enhancement or something else, whether I use platform features or third-party library, which library do I choose, how does it perform, all of these things they impact your work and eventually the user experience and design should be about people accessibility is about people which means that it gives code purpose it gives the work that i do purpose which brings me back to the first thing that i mentioned i want to feel like what i'm doing has purpose and is actually beneficial for people and um this is why i love accessibility in general because it is a concrete practical type of design. Something either works or it doesn't. And there is no room for bad decisions because it's about the user, not about you. So yeah, I'm passionate about accessibility because... I could tell. Yeah. I could tell. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, incredible to hear. And actually, you know, a few things that really kind of con connected the dots for me as well, because when I think about the work that I'm doing as well, I feel like we don't even notice that sometimes, but all these minor decisions about the labeling of, you know, navigation and the way we design navigation and the way, we, you know, we make buttons look like buttons, all those things can have tremendous impact. We might feel like, okay, we're just moving pixels around and we're just making things a little bit more nice, right? But I think that there are significant um, kind of decisions that we end up that we use kind of to really help somebody um, in different situations kind of complete the task to find information that they need and so on. Right? Exactly. And, and, and one thing that really kind of comes up uh, in my mind every time we have this conversation is that you often identify yourself with the design engineering role. And I see that some teams are moving towards that role now. Where in the past it was just a developer and then it was just a designer. And then it was a front-end developer and back-end developer. And you have an interface designer, you have the user experience designer. So maybe you could kind of shed a little bit of light into how you see design engineering as a role. And maybe many of our listeners now actually are uh, design engineers without even knowing that. So how would you define it? And do you think that companies actually understand what it means? I have actually sort of an essay, not just an article, an essay that is all about just defining the role of a design engineer and from my point of view. I even have, I even have a, a domain name that I purchased just to put that um, on it. Um, if, I, if I try to describe it with just a few words, because I already gave a super long answer to the previous question. That was a wonderful answer. <laughs> it wasn't long at all. Thank you. Um, okay, so a design engineer... We specialize in implementing designs. That is the um, general description, right? We specialize in implementing designs. But then 
of course, there is how you implement it. So I like to label, my, label myself as an inclusive design engineer, which is something that I'm doing on my new website, which is not public yet. So an inclusive design engineer is someone who, um, in my opinion, uses accessibility and progressive enhancement as a framework to build inclusive interfaces. And But as a design engineer in general, as someone who works directly with designers, hopefully, because this is what I think the the role should be. We should be working directly with the designers, helping them make decisions and informing design decisions with our accessibility and um, code knowledge, basically, because they um, they complement each other. Um, we we write HTML, we write CSS, we write a presentational JavaScript mo- uh, mostly, and with a strong focus on accessibility, hopefully, because... Um, that should be part of every design engineer's job. And then, of course, the strategy that you choose and the frameworks that you use, and, and I'm not talking about CSS frameworks or JavaScript frameworks here, but like I said, this it's let me just call it the strategy. Strategies that you use and what exactly you focus on and how you do your job as a design engineer probably differs between people. Because like I said, like I'm, an, I'm a progressive enhancement advocate. Others are maybe not. So we would differ in these small details, but design engineers, someone who works with designers, helps inform design decisions, makes sure that uh, designs are implemented in a way that hopefully works for as many users as possible. Right. So then as a design engineer at this point, how would you then actually work? So what would be your process like? So when you think think about you know implementing a particular design, do you break it down into components? Uh, do you think about navigational landmark, landmarks first? Do you, how do you actually start building things? What is your maybe mindset and that framework of kind of getting to accessible results? Maybe you could describe it a little bit. Okay, so when you say that, you divide the, you not just divide, basically look at the design and then start thinking in components. That very much depends on the process that you work with, with a designer. So if I'm working with someone who has handed over um, a design, like an entire page, the process is different from when I'm working with the designer, like, like I did with Jan Persil. I've mentioned him multiple times on Smashing Hour, by the way, because working with him was one of my favorite uh, ways of working with the designers because he didn't have like a full finished design for me to implement. We worked in tandem, we worked together and um, he changed some of the things in the design. So for example, um, he wasn't using a, a responsive type scale like we do in front end development now using CSS variables and viewport units, etc. So we had this discussion and then he, um, he start, he, he shifted the way the design process went, it was different. So we both started building the site in terms of components and then assembling those components into what we called slices back then and then assembling the slices into um, the entire website. So how I start from whether it's components or not depends on the process that I do, that I work with the designer. But then if I get a little bit more technical, like if I have a component that I want to build, how do I go about doing that? Um, in layers, I would say, um, again, progressive enhancement. The first thing that I think about is how does this work? How does this look like? How does someone perceive this if JavaScript is disabled and what happens if there is no style? So I just start with the bare minimum HTML. 
because HTML defines the semantics. The, the semantics give meaning to the content that I'm creating. So which HTML elements do I need to tell the user what this thing is, to give it semantics? Um, if the if HTML already contains an element that represents this component or this element that I'm building, I use that. If not, then I'm then I start to thinking about ARIA attributes. Which ARIA attributes do I need? How much ARIA do I need? Um, ARIA is um, how do I? I don't want to say it's not it's not an enhancement. It's it's necessary for a lot of uh, dynamic and interactive components. But I always try to think of it as a last resort, not a first one. So always semantic HTML first. How much can I get done with just semantic HTML? How accessible is it? Do I need something? Do I need to uh, polyfill some semantics using ARIA? If I do, then I start thinking about that, and then. Applying CSS and how does CSS affect these semantics? Does it? Does it not? Do I have to do something extra to make sure that something remains accessible after I style it? Like, for example, if you strip away the list, the default list styles on list elements, which is something you probably and many people probably already know by now. If you set list style to none, for example, on an unordered list, then Safari or WebKit, WebKit in general, is going to remove the semantics of the list. And voiceover is not going to announce that anymore. So what do I do in that case? Do I need those semantics? Do I go into the HTML and add them again using a role attribute or not? So I think about this stuff in layers. Start with HTML, semantics. Um, do I need ARIA? How do I style this? And then interactivity is always the last layer um, that I think about and that I build into components. Right, makes sense. It's it's interesting what you're saying that it's 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 a process. It's not just um, it doesn't seem like a simple process, for, especially when you think about like literally implementing quite complex interface, which maybe also have all kind of different views and mm -hmm. maybe single page application behind the back in the back and so on. And one thing that I'm struggling with when I'm doing work with uh, clients and uh, as a in kind of uh, trying to make things more inclusive and kind of interfaces maybe a bit more usable is that very often web accessibility is still seen as this little little thing. Like, okay, what's well, just semantics? So, okay, so we're going to use buttons for buttons. But it's actually much, much, much more than that. And I'm wondering, what do you think? Like, where do we actually stand in terms of accessibility today? It's very hard for me personally, for example, to imagine a new project being released without even considering accessibility. I think that might have been possible maybe a decade ago. I think today it would be very difficult to imagine a brand new project that's going to be advertised everywhere on posters that is not accessible at all. Yeah, There will be some parts accessible, but maybe not everything. So what do you think? Has accessibility now become just a natural part of every design implementation process? Or are we way, 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 way uh, kind of far away from this yet? I think we are... Not too far, but we're still far. So there is definitely a lot more awareness on accessibility. Um, I, I I hope so, at least, because I only follow like less than 250 people on Twitter. And most of the people in my circle are people who either work with accessibility or care about accessibility. So if I were to judge the current situation ba based on my little circle, I would say that accessibility is doing great and people care about it a lot and they work to make their content more accessible, but I can't speak for everyone because I know that this isn't the case for everyone. I know that there are still many developers who just simply don't care 
because with accessibility, it's you either care or you don't care. You know, this is this is this is it. If you don't care, then you are basically not doing any accessibility work at all. And then there, on the other hand, those that do care about accessibility and try to implement it in their work, some of them are finding difficulty because they get lost in all of the resources out there and which where should they go, where do they start. Um, this is why I'm creating the accessibility course now to hopefully help with that a little bit. Um, so we're definitely doing much better than we did like five years ago, let me say five. Um, but I don't think we're just exactly there yet. No, I think it's, I think it's, it's going to take more time. This episode of the Smashing Podcast is sponsored by Storyblock. Storyblock is the first headless CMS that works for both developers and marketers. How? By offering all the flexibilities of a headless CMS that you love and giving non-technical users a real-time visual editor with a true what-you-see-is-what-you-get experience. Storyblock's unique component-based approach allows you to reuse your well-structured content easily and work in a framework-agnostic environment. You can create and nest modular components without any limits, fill them with content, and customize them to any degree you want. What's great is that you don't have to worry about constantly supporting content editors. The visual editor allows all non-technical users to preview every single change in real time before publishing them, no matter if it's a product page or a blog article or what device it's going to end up being published in. You can also extend the editor with custom fields, applications and tools by simply using Storyblock's plugin system. Storyblock has everything you need to build better digital experiences. Limitless technology support, great localization and internationalization capabilities, extendability with a robust plugin system, e-commerce integrations, and so, so much more. This is why more than 120,000 projects across more than 130 countries are currently run using Storyblock, from solo developers to SMEs and large enterprises like Netflix, Adidas, T-Mobile, and Marco Polo. Why not try it yourself? You can create a free account by visiting storyblock.com. No credit card details are needed for sign-up. Storyblock offers a completely free community plan with image services for developers, freelancers, and small businesses. If you're working on a bigger project and you want to use premium features like custom roles, workflows, S3 backups, or single sign-on, check out Storybook's paid plan starting from $90 a month by visiting storyblock.com. That's S-T-O-R-Y-B-L-O-K.com. And we thank Storyblock for sponsoring this episode. Yeah, but then I also hear developers telling me all the time, well, 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 hold on, but the platform is evolving so beautifully at this point. We have not only the wonderful CSS features coming along, but also we have these incredible things, the common UI components, like input type, date for a date picker, the dialogue for models, uh, details and summary for accordions. And very often what I find is that they just use those things and they think that, okay, well, since these are native components available on the platform, they surely are accessible. And then come I along and then there is trouble. Uh, I'm wondering at this point, what would you say in this position? Like those things, would you recommend to use them ever? Or where are we there? Ideally, it would, it would be a very nice kind of idea and situation where we ended up with all those native components just available out of the box, beautiful, accessible, inclusive, and all of that. Are we there yet? No. Are we again far away from it? No, no, we're definitely not there yet. I know that the dialogue element, for example, has been pretty 
I don't want to say completely inaccessible, but it had a lot of accessibility issues for years now. And I think it only started getting better this year. Um, and then input type equal date. I don't, I rarely ever use it because to be honest, I don't think that it offers the best usability anyway, uh, even if it is accessible, which I'm, I'm, I think it's like, I don't, I don't know. I haven't, I haven't used it in a very long time, so I can't even tell if it's uh, fully accessible or not. But I think the last I heard was that it wasn't and that it was a usability nightmare. So even if something is technically accessible, that doesn't mean that it's going to be uh, usable. Um, th definitely a lot of tests. And I, I like this quote by my friend Scott O'Hara that he said in one of his talks. He said, technology and user expectations change rapidly and we should always test to ensure not only emerging patterns work correctly, but tried and true patterns continue to work as we expect. Because sometimes even some, uh, this is me now continuing, sometimes even something that you know works may stop working as you expect. Browsers may um, create new heuristics, for example, and, and the the way they and not interpret the way they present something to the user may change on any day. Um, also, a note about details and summary, which is something that I had a discussion about today. Um, details and summary are not the best choice for an accordion. They can be used for an accordion, but even they like. When you choose any any component, the first thing you have to think about is the semantics. What are the semantics that are going to be conveyed? Because the semantics determine the non-visual interface for uh, for uh, for a for a non-sighted user for a screen reader for a user for example assuming they're a non-sighted screen reader user details and summary they have their own uh, quirks when it comes to semantics uh, so summary has um, a button role which means that it is conveyed as a button to assistive technologies and buttons eat up the semantics of the elements inside of them mm. so if you have a heading which is what you would normally have in, a, in an accordion and if you put that inside of a summary then the heading is not going to be conveyed as a heading anymore of course there are exceptions because sometimes browsers try to uh, quote fix um, our misuse of ARIA or our misuse of semantics, and they try to help screen reader users by conveying things that we may have broken as developers, but it doesn't mean that all browsers do that. So definitely always you need to test. And if details and summary, for example, if you use that, and if the headings are not exposed as headings, and then the user cannot use those headings to navigate, for example, anymore. Um, so even if something is technically accessible, yes, they can access the contents of summary. Yes, they can access the contents of details. But you have to think about what semantics are you conveying and how do they affect the usability of the interface and sometimes maybe navigation. So right, a right. lot of things to keep in mind. Yeah, so it's interesting that you brought up the testing for accessibility at this point because uh, when I uh, when we run our workshops and every now and again we um, you know in, in my workshop I tend to just uh, explain to people how screen reader works and I always ask the same question uh, for the last I don't know two three four years maybe now I've been asking the same question so who is hearing this uh, voiceover for the very first time and these are usually designers or developers coming to those workshops and very often you would see a vast majority of people hearing things for the very first time right so um, maybe you could also shed a bit of light in how do you actually test for accessibility? Do you always have screen um, reader or voiceover on um, or maybe any other tools? Could you also maybe run us through the process of testing your components for accessibility? Okay, so there are quite a few things that I like to use and I'm going to mention them 
mention them in no particular order. Uh, definitely browser dev tools to inspect the accessibility tree because you can get a lot of insight on the accessibility of the elements and components that you're building from the accessibility tree. Because it basically, the accessibility tree is the accessibility, contains the accessibility information that the browser has created for assistive technologies to announce. So when you look at the accessibility tree, you can get an idea of how an element is going to be announced by um, a screen reader that that accesses and gets that information from the browser via the accessibility API, of course. Um, I like, so the dev tools for accessibility tree, um, there are a lot of uh, extensions that I like to use, for example, to see the document outline on a page or to see the landmarks on a page. Um, if I'm doing an accessibility audit, I would definitely use um, uh, an automated testing tool such as Dev tools, for example. Um, as far as screen readers go, definitely. Like, you cannot just test on one screen reader. And I have been guilty of this. I mean, I'm not like preaching something um, that I don't practice now, but I know that I didn't practice this before. I didn't have access, I don't have access to a Windows machine. So I recently, um, not recently, like a few months ago, I started using uh, NVDA on on my Windows virtual machine. And I also got recently a license for JAWS because JAWS is not free, but NVDA is free. So I use VoiceOver with Safari on iOS. Sometimes I test on other browsers as well, just because sometimes maybe a VoiceOver using, maybe using another browser. But generally speaking, VoiceOver and Safari are the, the best combination and users typically know that. And on Windows, I test NVDA with Firefox, NVDA with Chrome, and uh, Narrator is also built into Windows, so I use that for testing as well. And JAWS is the most popular screen reader according to the WebAIM um, screen reader user survey. So yes, you have to test using multiple screen readers and browser combinations because just like you cannot test your website only on one browser, like say you've built a website and you want to test if everything is working as expected, all your CSS and stuff, you don't just test it on one browser, right? You test it on most modern browsers and possibly even on IE if you still have to support that. Just like you test on multiple browsers, you also have to test on multiple screen readers if you can. Um, so yeah, so this is what I do. In general. Yeah, so you also mentioned in one of the smashing hours that tool... Assistive Labs. Assistive Labs, which is kind of like browser stack for uh, screen readers, which mm -hmm. is really neat to see as well. Um, and I think it's, uh, for me, it's kind of really this really interesting world of kind of other browsers, I would say, because we tend to focus a lot on, you know, how often does, uh, what, what are some of the fancy new features we get in Firefox and in Chrome and in Safari. But... Uh, Maybe, do, do you know just in general, would you say that the development of screen readers is kind of, the, the frequency of updates, is it similar? Or is it something like, you know, maybe there is a new version coming up every six months or even every, only just once a year? Right? Do you see things getting, because, because you know, we have this multi, um, how do you call it, but compatibility, compatibility, right, stuff happening across browsers. So really doesn't matter as much as it used to if you're using Firefox or Chrome or Safari or Edge at this point. Do you see that it's also moving in the world of screen readers towards this compatibility mode, not mode, compatibility across different screen readers? Or is it, uh, maybe you could shed just a bit of light about that world and that universe of screen readers? To be honest, I have, I've never dug that deep into it. So I haven't been monitoring, for example, 
um, screen reader updates, like how often NVDA is updated and how often JAWS is updated. But I do know that even if JAWS or NVDA is updated, not all screen reader users are going to update their software because oh, they right, are they are right. aware of a lot of a lot of things may break for them, and if they already have an environment that works, nobody wants to break something that works for them. So I know that yeah. many mm -hmm. many screen reader users do not update their software as often as we may think that they do. Right. Well, of course, talking about browsers at this point, I do have to bring up the wonderful notion of wonderful CSS. And uh, obviously, I do have some questions yes. about CSS as well. And one thing that I definitely have to ask, and I know what your answer is going to be, but I still like hearing it every single time. So I am going to bring this up. Uh, I have a feeling, well, I know that you have or maybe don't have strong feelings about CSS methodologies or frameworks or JavaScript frameworks for that matter. Hmm, do you have any favorites or do you not? Do you always just uh, work with what the project is kind of requires? Or how do you pick your battles? Would you ever use any kind of framework um, or CSS framework library, Tailwind, CSS in JS? I don't know. I mean, a short no would suffice. I can't just say no because it depends on the project. If I'm working with a team and everyone on the team is using Tailwind, then I will definitely be using Tailwind with them, but I've never right. had to do that yet. And I've been super lucky with, actually, I would even say privileged with the projects that I've worked on so far. So no, I don't use any CSS frameworks. I prefer not to use them because they come with a lot of, most of them, and I'm not, not talking specifically about uh, any particular framework here. Most of them come with a lot of overhead. And for me personally, I feel that trying to remove all the unnecessary uh, CSS or learn something or learn a frame. It's just so much faster for me to build something from scratch, literally. Like I have, I have some CSS that I've created over the years uh, that I move from one project to the other. And of course I constantly update that and I um, use that. It's kind of like a mini tiny framework that I use, like there's some utility classes that I use in there, um, uh, some settings, I call them the settings files for setting up uh, the type the type scale and the tokens for, uh, for theming and all that stuff. But I would definitely rather not use a CSS framework. Um, I don't have super strong feelings about them. I personally use a combination of BEM, ITCSS, and utility classes in my work. And I only add CSS or as much CSS as I need. So if I need a utility class, I add it to the utility class list that I have. If not, I don't just add it just in case I'm going to need it. I'm super minimal um, when it comes right. to writing CSS. All right. Can you, Sarah, can you hear the voices of the wonderful people on the remote corners of the internet asking for that uh, little framework that you have created to be open source, maybe? I will. I, I do plan on doing that. Yes. Um, not yet. You know, the course has taken up most of my time. My website has been neglected. My blog has literally been abandoned for months and I'm going to do like even the um, the website that I'm using. I built the the course website from scratch using Eleventy. I'm even considering sharing that as a framework if anyone wants to use it someday. So a lot of stuff that I have on my to do list, but I'm postponing all of it till after the course is released because I need to get this done. 
All right, so maybe let's just jump into the course. Uh, I think that we've been speaking about it a couple of times already, but I could not be more excited to actually get this course finally released. Well, do you think you could actually share a bit of insight about what it's going to be about, when it's going to be released, and where wonderful people listening to this show can subscribe to updates to actually get it when it does get released? Okay, updates, subscription, email newsletter on um, practical-accessibility.today. That is the website for where the course is going to be hosted currently. It just includes an overview of what the course is about and a link to subscribe to the newsletter. But hopefully next month when the back end is finally ready because we're doing everything from scratch and I hired um, a friend of mine to build the back end and all the payment stuff into it. Once that is finished, the website is going to be updated with more details about the course. So I'm going to introduce the course in a short video. Um, there's going to be a more detailed table of contents. I haven't shared the table of contents yet because it keeps changing a lot. Um, like even yesterday, I added a new section or a new chapter in between two other chapters. So if I had shared the table of contents before, it wouldn't have been super accurate. So hopefully in a month, um, I think during the next smashing hour, I'm going to be making um, an important update on the course. Oh, that's cool. Mm. That's nice. That's nice. Uh, can I ask you just uh, on that point? Uh, I find it so difficult to record videos. I always feel like, oh, no, 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 I shouldn't have said that. I should re rewind back and then I should re-edit and then I should change and then the, I kind of keep going all the time. And it takes me, I don't know, hours to just record 10 or 15 minutes of stuff. Is it the same for you or do you just go? I have, I, um, I'm already worried about this because I'm, I haven't recorded anything final yet. I've only done a few, uh, like some testing and editing stuff. I'm starting with the course in reverse, actually. I'm not recording first. Um, I'm going to give more, uh, more details about the process and everything later once it's finished, but I've decided to do things in a different way so that when it's time to do the recordings and the editings, I ho will hopefully have eased things for myself so that they don't take as much time. And something that I need to keep reminding myself of is, you know, because I'm, I'm a perfectionist and that sometimes is a bad thing. Um, I'm just going to assume that I'm on stage in a conference and just like, I can't edit every single word I say on stage. I'm going to try to just ignore some things in the videos. That's going to be super difficult, especially because I know that I can edit them, but um, it's definitely going to take some self-discipline to do that. Yeah, so it's it's impossible for me. I always say like, oh, no, 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 no. of course I can go back. And surely I can come back. <laughs> so it, in the end, it just takes hours. But I think that we all cannot wait for, for the video course to be finally released Thank and you. get our hands on the videos. Um, this is very, very exciting. Uh, maybe talking about excitement. I know that there are so many wonderful new features coming to the web. It just, you know, the, I don't know when it's coming. Is it like Chrome 103 something where we should be expecting the has pseudo class coming in, container queries coming in. It's like uh, Christmas coming early. Um, the year of CSS. Yeah, the year of CSS. So maybe you could just share, share a bit of light about what are you excited about at this point? What is the thing that keeps you awake at night where you think, oh, if it only was available today, I would use it all over in my project, uh, my projects. Uh, what would that be? Or what are you most excited about these days in CSS? Well, CSS doesn't keep me up at night, but um, I do. I do look forward to things like um, definitely subgrid. I know that I was one of the very 
one of the people who started requesting uh, container queries years ago and then we finally got them but then at this point we were already doing a lot of intrinsic uh, responsive design already and uh, using flexbox and uh, css grid to create responsive components that don't require container queries anymore although they I, i mean they are still important and i will definitely still be using them but probably what i'm personally more excited about is cascade layers and subgrid um, because almost every single project that I've used, especially since I worked on the Prismic Slices project in 2019, that project changed the way I started building um, websites, at least for me. It, it influenced the work that we did on the VPE website um, with Jan, and it also influences now my own work on my website, for example. Instead of thinking of pages as either pages or small components, there is this middle ground, which is slices. Um, and layout within slices always, always, like I've always wanted the ability to um, inherit the grid on the parent container of the parent container into the child. And so subgrid is going to be one of the things that I will probably need even more than container queries in my work. Cascade layers, I wouldn't say that I need it, but the way it allows me to organize my CSS the same way the CSS is organized inside of my head, so to speak, that is one of the reasons why I'm excited about it mm -hmm. as well. Okay. Uh, and then maybe just a few final questions to finally wrap up, just because I'm very, very curious. So I'm sure you have a couple of books uh, kind of laying around at this point. How do you organize your books? Are they organized by topic? Are they organized by color? Uh, I met some people doing that. Uh, how do you organize them? Um, by color, but, but not like the rainbow style color that yeah. other people do. Um, okay. Okay. Uh, how many pencils or pens do you have on your table most of the time? Um, probably two. Not more, All right. like one or two. And how many screens? You mean for work? Yes. Right now, just two. The laptop and an external display, 32-inch. Okay, because for me, kind of moving to a secondary display was really a, a deal breaker. It's, it's, it was just incredible. Yeah. And then finally, one thing that I do want to ask, and it's totally unrelated. Do you happen to have a printer? No, I haven't had one in, in more than two decades, I think. Yeah, now I feel just lonely because every time I bring this up, because I just got a printer like what two months ago, and I'm very proud of this because this is like me having a printer like for the first time in two decades. It seems like I'm the only person who is buying printers at this point. That makes me very, very sad. I mean, you live in Germany, right? And you still do a lot of printed paperwork there, yeah, so you need it. There is, yes, yes, indeed, you're absolutely right. Well. Okay, now we know that. <laughs> All right, well, so we've been learning a little bit about what it means to design and create more accessible interfaces today. What have you been learning about lately, Sarah? Maybe one interesting insight or one uh, unusual thing that you've learned recently which really uh, changed your views, maybe. Maybe it's just something that somebody said to you which has influenced your work or just the way you're thinking about design or about development. Anything in that department? Nothing that big, but a lot of small detail. Mm -hmm. Like what? There are super technical things. Okay, so when it comes to you mean when it comes to kind of implementation of accessible of um, accessible components. And yeah, yeah. Like there that. are there are a lot of things that I learned from digging really deep into into specifications, and I love that because my go to resource to learn about almost anything, starting with CSS and other things, is to go to the specifications first. And there's so much I've learned from that 
recently. All right, excellent. Well, so if you, dear listener, would like to hear more from Sarah, you can follow her on Twitter, where she is Sarah Suedan, and also find all her work links from her website at www.sarahsuedan.com. And also, don't forget to subscribe to Practical Accessibility Doc Today, which I heard, as we heard today, will be released soon. So this is something I'm very, very much looking forward to. In the summer, hopefully. That's that's what I'm aiming for. Well, that's uh, well fantastic news one way or the other. Mm-hmm. Well, thanks so much for joining us today, Sarah. Do we have any parting words? Thank you for having me. Today is Global Accessibility, um, Global Accessibility Awareness Day. So if there is something or one thing that you can do today, I would say go either learn something new about accessibility or if you already have the knowledge fix something on your own website or on somebody else's website uh, like open a pr fix an issue that um that exists somewhere out there spread the word on accessibility and subscribe to my newsletter this is smashing and that was our podcast thank you very much for listening and if you liked it please share it with your friends Find us on the web at smashingmagazine.com, on Twitter at SmashingMag, Smashing Magazine on Facebook, or in the supermarket by the cat food. Thank you.